The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We want Donald Trump to be more intelligent. And we would certainly like Donald Trump's time in the limelight to be brief. And yet when it comes to his getting an intelligence brief, we somehow become apoplectic. Oh, yes. Donald Trump will be going to FBI offices in Manhattan to receive his first intelligence briefing tomorrow. And we know we could trust the process because it is a time-honored tradition among intelligence professionals, one of whom leaked news that Trump will be getting his first briefing to the news media. Now, I know the accepted thing in hand-ringy circles is to fret about what a seeming madman might do with an intelligence briefing. Nevada Senator Harry Reid had this idea. It's obvious that he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's obvious he can't control his mind or his tongue. And what I've suggested, if now because he's the nominee for the party uh, and he gets, he's entitled to briefings from the CIA, for example, I told, I said publicly, give him fake briefings. Pretend you're briefing him. Don't tell him anything that you don't want to get out. Exactly wrong. You must do the opposite. You have to tell Donald Trump real things, things that he never knew, things that would help him if he knew them. The only thing is you have to tell him now he's the only one who knows that. Like, Mr. Trump, I hope you're sitting down. We have to tell you this. Putin and the Russians are already in Ukraine. Yes, yes, it's true. They've also taken over Crimea. It's true. Putin's there. Or Mr. Trump, just between you and I, The U.S. has nuclear weapons in submarines, in the form of land-based missiles, and on airplanes. And please don't disclose this, but we have called this code name the nuclear triad. And maybe even this one. Mr. Trump, this is highly unusual, but could you grab your friend Rudy from outside? I know he's hanging right outside the door. Yeah. Rudy, we'd like to invite you in on this one. We have, from an unimpeachable source, this fact, it turns out. On September 11th, 2001, New York, Washington, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania were all attacked by terrorists. The mayor of New York at the time, who was you, confirms that this happened. And that'll hold Trump over until next time, when he is told, top secret, keep it under your hat, but there are nine seats on the Supreme Court. That will be quite a shock. On the show today, I spiel about hands, the ringing kind and the other ones, use them or lose them. But first, in Rio, American gymnast Simone Biles won gymnastics gold, Ali Raisman won silver, American gymnast Danelle Leva won silver on the bars, and the Hungarian duo of Kozak and Sabo took gold in the much-heralded women's kayak double sprint 500 meters. But what about the Brazil beyond the mats, the fields, the lake, the velodrome, the pool, the trampoline? You know, what about the future of the actual country? Franklin Four is here with his assessment. The trouble in and around Rio and the Rio Olympics is for these few weeks, A, pretty much swept under the carpet by NBC, and B, if it is acknowledged, it's acknowledged through the lens of the Olympics. How does the roiling corruption of Brazil affect the time-honored corruption 
of the Olympics. But let's get away from the Olympics for a second. Let's not think about Brazil in the context of the Olympics. Let's just think about Brazil. The shame of the fifth largest country in the world, fifth largest in terms of land area and population, is not that it's screwing with the beloved Olympics. The shame is, well, it's in the title of Franklin Ford's article for Slate, Can Brazil Be Saved? Colossal Corruption, Political Chaos, The Worst Recession in Its History. The Olympics Won't Rescue the Once Booming Nation, But All Is Not Lost. Hello, Frank. Hello, Mike. So the question, and that last phrase, all is not lost, I think it really belies the pessimistic overall tone. You don't say all is lost, but that is not an emphasis of your analysis of Brazil. Things are pretty bad. There was a slight pitch twist at the end of the, mm-hmm. the subtitle, you got uh, which is for sure. I mean, the thing is, is that Brazil right now is being roiled, as you said, in all these fundamental sorts of ways. And if you look at all the suffering that it's going through right now, especially the political suffering that it's going through right now, um, having just survived this farce of an impeachment and having all of its politicians under the cloud of possible indictment. And there's this, there's a prosecutor called Sergio Moro, who um, he's a judge actually, but who's overseeing this massive, massive corruption inquisition inquiry that's bringing down, you know, politicians from the highest level down to the lowest. The hope is that from all of this pain, from all of this suffering, there'll be the possibility for some sort of national renewal. And that, that national renewal will come from the fact that you know, maybe, maybe once for the first time in its history, Brazil is actually looking corruption squarely in the eye and doing something about it. So when we say, so let's just establish some facts. Dilma Rousseff, the president, was impeached, but just like America, impeached means charges will be brought against her in the Senate. I think 60% of elected officials in Brazil, not all elected officials, but to the federal legislature are currently under indictment. What? Hello? And and I don't even know if this was in your article, but I, I think I've read that there are, what, a few giant construction companies, four or five, and the majority, if not all of their heads are also under indictment or facing charges. So the, the, the construction companies are at the heart of Brazilian, in some ways, Brazilian national identity, but also at the heart of Brazilian corruption. And that is because each successive regime, whether it's a dictatorship or a left-wing regime, like the one that's been in, been in power for the last uh, since 2002, have all attempted to to shape Brazil using the state. They've all embarked on massive construction projects, building dams, ports, stadiums, and that's involved uh, giving these big contracts to the same companies over and over again. And those companies have padded their pockets, but also padded the pockets of the politicians who supplied them with the contracts. And that's that's really kind of the center of the things. And that, that sets the norm. That's the tone that has filtered down to the rest of society. Yeah. So so there's Dilma Rousseff. She has her flaws. She's sort of left holding the bag, not just for mismanagement, but a policy that seems to some extent to have inevitably led to this, which was Lulu da Silva a maybe a Bill Clinton type, maybe even if you love him that much, an FDR or LBJ type, great society, 
massive programs. However, spending so much on infrastructure, spending so much to boost the economy in kind of old, let's put up tons of building ways. How could the bill not have come due, I guess is my question, in some later administration? So that's right. And it was even a little bit worse than that, which is that Brazil, in the middle of the last decade, discovered massive and ma- massive amounts of oil. It was it had it had kind of almost Saudi Arabia like potential from all this offshore oil that it had discovered. And Lula da Silva made a decision that he was going to take the the state oil company Petrobras uh, and kind of turn it into an arm of his political party. He would stack it with cronies from his party and the company would then in turn fund his party's political dominance. I think that that was kind of the distant hope. And that's what the prosecutor's trying to lay on him right now. And so PT, which was Lula and Dilma's party, was basically playing in some ways by the accepted Brazilian rules, but they were doing it on a massive scale and um, there were three billion dollars in bribes that were paid out through Petrobras. That's just a staggering sum. Yeah. I mean, that that it's really it's almost hard to believe that anything could produce something on such a scale where three billion dollars worth of bribes would feel like a worthy investment. But that's that's what happened. And everybody in the system didn't matter their political party, didn't matter their rank, got sucked into this scheme. So when Lula da Silva left office, and this was just a few years ago, I mean, when he was, yeah. when they when they won the bid for the Olympics, he had higher popularity ratings than Bill Clinton. He was, in fact, the most popular ex-leader in the Western Hemisphere. He was seen to have overseen an economic miracle. I remember when he came into office, the markets punished him because they said he was going to yeah. bring about socialism. They were totally wrong. I mean, he revitalized the economy. They were a quote-unquote brick nation, the first of the Brazil, Russia, India, and China, nations, you know, close to double-digit growth, all of that. Could De Silva have built more safeguards? Could he have built in a cushier landing? Could he just have, you know, avoided corruption and gone in for yeah. more good governance along the way? Yeah, well, first of all, let's give him a little bit more credit than you just gave him, which is that people's fears were that he was going to usher in um, uh, Cuban or Venezuelan-style socialism. And he didn't do that. What he did was he brought tens of billions of people out of absolute poverty. He established the Brazilian state more. And I mean, you would never call Brazil Norway, but it made significant gestures towards being to having a a real safety net, um, which it never had before. He he, he allowed the Brazilian, the, the working poor Brazilian to borrow credit, which allowed them to purchase all sorts of consumer goods and made them feel like they were part of a nation that had always in some ways treated them like second class citizens. And so, but the question that you ask is, is really the hardest one, which was that could Lula have somehow challenged corruption? Could he have taken on the system that he had inherited that had, that was just rife with so much corruption? And I think it's almost impossible to imagine that happening simply because corruption is so deeply ingrained in the political culture of the entire country. And he basically made a devil's bargain to, to some extent to, to play, play along with the system in order to accomplish what he wanted. But that even that phrase, devil's bargain, doesn't feel quite right to me because 
in order for it to have been a devil's bargain, he would have had to have seen the hand of the devil. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that anybody in the Brazilian political system really was thought of corruption as being anything apart from the run of the mill business that you had to do. And that's what makes this current moment so interesting is you've got this judge, Sergio Moro, who I mentioned earlier, who spent a lot of time studying the corruption case in Italy that brought down the mafia and brought down the government there. And I think it was the 1990s. And he, he trained in the United States and kind of venerates the American judicial system. And he was looking for a corruption case, really, that could try to bring down the whole system and, and could shock the system into evolving in a much cleaner direction. And, you know, lo and behold, he's stuck with the mother of all corruption cases, which is Petrobras, which was $3 billion in bribes flowing in every direction. So uh, that that's where things could get interesting, that you could have this case that could actually explode things in a fundamental sort of way. I'm trying to think what Brazil's lessons are for other countries. I mean, if we were to take the best parts of Brazil that do show that there's something to be replicated elsewhere and acknowledge that the corruption is bad and let's find a way to stop that, you know, what's the lesson? All right. Well, so to me, the, the, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm looking for the rede- I'm going to be able to show you the redeeming lesson that yeah. could be applicable elsewhere. But I think that there are lessons that, that emerge from looking at what Brazil has done wrong. And the first is the relationship between the state and business. There's a real corruption is what happens when you allow the state and business to establish a cozy relationship. And, and the second the second thing is that is that corruption sometimes can be so deeply ingrained in a place that it ceases to generate outrage and it becomes a cultural norm. And I think both of those lessons that I just described are things that in, in some way, or shape, or form, could be described to the United States. I mean, Bernie Sanders screamed a lot about regulatory capture. And one of the, the truths of the American economy at this moment is that, that there are a lot of corporations and a lot of industries that have become dominated by one big corporation. And part of that corporation's dominance rests on the very comfortable relationship that it has with government via campaign contributions, via lobbying, via regulatory systems that cease to become adversarial and start to become quite comfortable. It becomes so so much a part of the fabric of life that we cease to see it as an evil. And on some, on some sort of grander level, that's what happened in Brazil. Let's talk about Dilma Rousseff for a second. There are a couple of phrases and a couple of uh, aspects of her presidency that resonated with me, such as first female president, such as in the shadow of this uh, kind of grandiose extroverted figure who oversaw a booming economy, such as sentences like these, Dilma's personal style is distrustful, but she could be coolly pragmatic. And another of your sentences, given her difficulty trusting others and her technocratic appetite for micromanagement. All right, that was a sentence fragment, but still. Anyway, remind you of someone? Yeah, I actually, you know, I hadn't seen that until you pointed it out. So Dilma's a little bit different than Hillary Clinton. Her experience, Dilma's defining experience, was in the kind of leftist underground Che Guevara inspired movement 
that challenged the military dictatorship. And she was she was in the business of planning kidnappings and bank robberies, and she was arrested by the military uh, government uh, holding a gun in in Sao Paulo, and she was tortured for three years in the most horrible sorts of ways, where she was hung up naked on a rack for very long periods of time with her arms bound. She was prodded, electrocuted, tortured with rodents. Whereas Hillary Clinton has has a level of distrust that is problematic, Dilma Rousseff had a level of distrust that was almost pathological, understandably so. Yeah. But just like given what she went through, it's kind of amazing that she was able to function as a human being, let alone ascend to the highest office in the land. But she was just not somebody who her experience just doesn't cut her out for politics. Right. Although, I don't know, maybe this is unfair. Che Guevara is not Marion Wright Edelman, but you could argue maybe that Hillary Clinton... <laughs> Hillary Clinton what, what kind of Glenn Beck have you been listening <laughs> to? <laughs> Hillary Clinton fought through the toughest uh, politics that America has to offer. Dilma Rousseff did that with Brazilian politics, just that in Brazil, it's a lot tougher. In fact, it's not even politics. It's just an autocratic oppressor. You were there in 2014 for the World Cup? Yeah. How, how has it changed since then in the two years? So it was in the beginning of a tailspin in 2014. There had just been big demonstrations against the state, and it seemed like things were just starting to bubble up, and everybody could see that the country was headed in a bad direction. But just the sense of there's – there's just so much despair that you can feel on the street, and you, and you look in stores, and things cost – so much money and there's just a lot of obvious signs of extreme stagnation right now in the country in the sense that things are still going to take another further turn worse. Rio is kind of on the verge of some sort of explosion of violence that's all been bottled up because of the Olympics. Rio had to borrow a whole lot of money from the national government in order to pay for security during the Olympics. And also, what a surprise, there were incredible cost overruns in the construction of various aspects of infrastructure. And so Rio is broke. And in all likelihood, police aren't going to get paid after the Olympics. And they'll go on strike. And the favelas, which have had a massive police presence for the last eight years as part of a pacification program, are suddenly going to um, fall under gang control. And the gangs have already started to come back into the favelas, first with drugs, and now we're seeing more guns come back. And people talk about the next generation of gang leaders, that gangs before had been so ensconced in the favelas that you had a generation of leadership of the gangs that could be horrifically violent, but were also older and were tempered by a little bit of experience. And they talk about how there are a bunch of 18-year-olds with guns and drugs who are going to be taking over the favelas and people are worried about their their temperaments, as you can imagine. There's this bloodiness. That's, just, that's the next chapter. That's interesting. And that'll be something to watch. The story of crime in the Olympics isn't that there was crime during the Olympics. It's that the prevention of that crime will possibly cause an explosion afterwards. Can Brazil be saved was the article in Slate by Slate's contributing editor, Franklin Four, author of many other works, such as uh, How Soccer Explains the World. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. 
And now the spiel. You're in good hands, we're told by Leslie Jones. What's it like to be in good hands? Man, it's like pure power at your fingertips. Like the power to earn Allstate reward points every time I drive. This message dates back 50 years. Allstate Deluxe Homeowners Insurance protects against loss from more hazards than you can count for less money than most companies charge. Talk to the good hands people. You're in good hands with Allstate. But our hands, our actual hands, are actually not as good as they used to be. Well, I don't mean my hands. My hands are rough-hewn and weathered by manual labor, by laying rebar and hauling bags of sand in war zones. All right, I just lift weights without gloves. That is my secret. But when I say my hands are not as bad as they used to be, I really mean that. My generation, we're fine. It's the young ones. A new report is out, and it is titled Comparative Study of Millennials' Grip and Lateral Pinch with the norms. Have you met the norms? The norms are the best. They're the people who are older than the millennials. They're less clingy. They're less desperate for praise. The norms have been holding things up quite capably for years. And I like it when they call us the norms and not the olds. But millennials do not have quite a grasp on the world that we once beheld. In fact, this report indicates they don't have much of a grasp on anything. Quote, strength scores were statistically lower in millennials than older normative data in millennial grip strength, with the exception of the women in the age group 30 to 34. So why millennial women of that age having a good grip? Is it that they're wringing their hands over fertility issues? Or maybe they're wringing their hands over reproductive rights in the South? Or maybe they're wringing their hands over equal pay? Or the return of the mom gene? Anyway, they're out of their 20s. They do have a care in the world, and it shows up in hand strength. A lot of hand wringing helping those millennial women in their early 30s. Not so the manually deficient men of that age, for whom a firm handshake is regarded as a form of microaggression. Now, we've been told that cell phones get smaller and smaller, as do tablets, as technology changes. But that's not the case. It's just that the young kids, they lack the strength to actually grasp the old cell phones. The new Arthurian legend, instead of a sword in the stone, it would be a Samsung Galaxy. Uh, I can't do it, Merlin. Give me an iPhone 5. I do not prefer the days of yore with maidens and knights, though today's young man could no more throw down the gauntlet than pick one up in the first place. And while it's ridiculous to venerate the honor-bound duelists of the Elizabethan period, dueling robbed us of our first treasury secretary, the greatest hip-hop character since R. Kelly locked himself in the closet, it is impractical to think that today's men would duel, not because they're honorless or less manly, they just can't muster the strength to slap another guy in the face with a glove. In all seriousness, though, it's clear that our society is turning away from a calloused pair of hands as a demarcation of masculinity or worth or, and this is important, of earning ability. Time was, if your back was strong and your spirit was willing, you could have a nice middle-class life. That's not true anymore, for good and for ill. Maybe more for good. It is an evolution of society that we value brains over brawn. And what brawn we do value needs to be mixed with brains to maximize earnings. There are costs to this change, of course. For instance, most people are of average or below average intelligence. Do the math on that. Society has to work for them too. But if we define what averages up, 
so that even the below average can deliver know-how, if not elbow grease, then the economy will work well and its benefits can be shared. Hands have always been a stand-in for work, but they don't have to be. Here's a classic political ad. It is said to have won the Senate election for North Carolina's Jesse Helms. He was up against African-American challenger Harvey Gantt. The image we see is a pair of hands, a pair of white hands, very importantly, angrily crumbling up a termination notice. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Now imagine if this ad were made today for today's economy, the knowledge economy. The focus is on brains, not hands. So maybe the camera pans to the knitted brow of an out-of-work white man. Maybe he's sitting at a computer clicking on a site and it says no job openings. And his eyes, his blue eyes narrow and squint and he hangs his head. But that ad doesn't have the same impact. The knowledge economy, it seems at least more like a meritocracy. I think the message that we take away with furrowed brow instead of hands is fill your brains with more smarts. Don't just stew over having lost your job or blame it on someone else. Of course, what seems to be going on now with millennials might be the worst of both worlds. Demonstrably, they've lost physical strength, but are they replacing it with wits? Do they have knowledge, but not just knowledge, they have savvy and those qualities of mind like creativity and ingenuity that are necessary to succeed? I wonder, here are some reasons for optimism. There's something called the Flynn effect. This holds that Each subsequent generation is smarter than its forebearers, generally true. Also, millennials are more comfortable with information accessing via technology. It's the way of the world now. And I would guess that the top, I don't know, 10% of millennials are probably smarter than the top 10% of my generation or the top 10% of baby boomers or the greatest generation. I mean, all those AP classes and SAT prep courses. But as for the mass of millennials, the question might not even be, are they smarter than previous generations? It might be, and for the first time ever, are they smarter than their generations, but spread throughout the world? 20 years ago, 50 years ago, that wasn't really a relevant question. A strong American engaged in physical labor could expect a much higher standard of living than the vast majority of the world's citizens. That is becoming much less true every year. It might be uncomfortable, but it is something that we need to grasp. Or else the future, like so much these days, will slip away. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, her security briefing includes which twin sister in the pantsuit is the actual AG of Pennsylvania and which is the fake, purposeful distraction AG. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast Security Briefing, would notify him a few hours beforehand that plots has been hitting the sauce pre-cocktail chatter. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, his security briefing includes whispers about Earwolf and mobilizations along Pineapple Street. The gist, here to tell you that the top secret injury reports out of ultimate fighting events are on a nose-to-knee basis. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening.